Um, we kind of started last week in our family service. How many of you enjoyed our family day service? I hope you got, yeah, it was really awesome to just, we love to do that a couple times a year just to get uh, all, as many of the pastors as we can on stage and uh, just have a, a lot of fun together. How many, who remembers the faith fact from last week? Does anybody remember? Just shout it out if you remember. You are created for a purpose. So it does work. I mean, it's, it, we, we said we're, we're going to make sure we say that like 25 times in the service. And so we really enjoy, we enjoyed being able to do that. Uh, but part of that was this idea that you are made for more, which is this series that we were kicking off last week. Um, and there are three parts of that that we wanted to look at. And the first is just knowing, okay, that that's the, the beginning of what you know is that God made you for a purpose. So can you turn to your neighbor and say you were created for a purpose? Tell your other neighbor too so that they don't feel left out. All right, that's important. You were created for a purpose, but here's the thing. There is a big difference between knowing, experiencing, and then doing something about it. And really, that, uh, this slide up here that I'd asked them to put up for us, the idea is that you can know something and then that affects who you are. It affects your being. And then who you become affects what you're doing. And each part of that begins to feed into the other. What you're doing begins to affect what you know and who you are. And, And so as we took a look last week at just this idea of understanding, knowing, maybe even beginning to believe that God created you for a purpose. This next part is stepping into it. How do I begin to experience the hope of Jesus in my life? How can I do that? Because I know some of you, you know, we even said this at the end of the service, I, I sense that God maybe wants me to do something or has a plan for my life, but, but I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to step into that or to embrace that, if you will. And so I wanted to just go through uh, a story in the Bible of a man by the name of Gideon. And really kind of looking at his life, give us some practical steps of what it means to step into God's plan for your life. Because it is for you. How many of you know that God doesn't have favorites? You know, I get asked that by my kids sometimes. They'll ask, like, who's your favorite? We usually say Roman, but no. (laughs) Now, you know, we know that as parents, we don't have favorite kids, right? You might have a least favorite. That's a different subject. But we don't have favorites, right? We, we love each other, and, and here's the reality, that God's plan for your life is, is not that you're a nobody. He uses people who feel like they are insignificant to do incredible things. But I want to tell you a little bit about this man, Gideon, before we talk about him. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 this morning, if you want to uh, open up in your Bible, or we will have it available on the screen for you. But this man, Gideon, he, he's growing up in, in Israel in a time where they've taken a hold of the land of Israel, but they don't have a kingdom. They're just being led by God. And it's it's an awesome thing, but unfortunately, they keep going through this cycle in their lives. They go through this cycle of, we're totally dedicated to God, we're following God, things become good. Then because things are good, we forget about God, and then we rebel against God. And because we rebelled against God, now God is sending somebody in to oppress us. And now we feel oppressed, and we're crying out and saying, God, will you help us? And then God sends a deliverer. This cycle happens over and over again. In fact, By the time we read about Gideon, this is the fifth time that Israel has been through this exact same cycle. But Gideon is in this land, and and what's happening is the people are being oppressed by this group of people called the Midianites. Who they are isn't really important, but they're just the the people of that day who are bringing oppression. And so he's in this place, and he's, he's sitting, and God comes to speak to him. He sends the angel of the Lord, and this is what we read in verses 12 through 16. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. 
Now, I want to back up here just a second, just so we're aware of what's taking place here, because I want you to have a nice mental picture of what we're talking about. Gideon is hiding in his basement, basically, making some grain, because if he's doing it publicly, they're going to take it away from him. And so instead of doing like the heroic thing where, you know, like for us, because we've seen way too many movies where the, you know, whatever, that he wouldn't go out in the public square and say, I'm going to make this grain and they won't take it from me. He hides in his basement. And it's basically in this context that God says, mighty hero, okay? The Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has handed us, has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I am with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So here's this picture, right? Average Joe, all right? That, that's who Gideon is. He's not a hero. He's not somebody of noble birth, of notoriety or noble character. He is a nobody. And God comes to him and says, Gideon, I created you for a purpose. But where you're at right now is not what I've called you to. I want to help you to step into what I've called you to become. And, and there's, a, there's a bridge between those two things. But, but here's what Gideon does. He kind of gives God a little bit of a, of a history lesson, if you will. He says, God, just so you know, there were 12 tribes in Israel. I'm from Manasseh, which is the weakest tribe in all of Israel. And if that wasn't bad enough, my family within the tribe of Manasseh is the least family in all of Manasseh. And if that wasn't enough, Lord, just so you're aware, I'm the least of my family within the least of my tribe in Manasseh. What's he saying? I'm the least of the least of the least. I'm the weakest of the weakest of the weak. He, what is he saying? God, use somebody else, not me. You picked the wrong guy. You ever have a moment like that? You picked the wrong person, God. I know you think that uh, I'm capable of this or you want to do something here through me. And, and do, I can't do it, God, because I'm not that person. We ask ourselves questions like, what can one person do, right? Surely they can get on and post something on Facebook that will be very controversial. That'll fix everything. Right? No, don't do that. What can one person do? And that is exactly where Gideon is at. So if, if, if you've ever had that thought to yourself, what can I do? What, how, how can I as one person make a difference? I watch the news and I see the, all the terrible things that are going on in the world around me. Or even in my local community, I see these terrible things that are happening to kids or, or to families. Or, or, and I look at it and I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do about that? I'm just one person. And so God says to Gideon, I want you to go in the strength that you have. And Gideon wisely responds, uh, God, just so you don't know, I don't have any strength. I don't have it. So then God follows up with this. He says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'm not just sending you to go do something on your own. I'm going to be with you to do everything that you need. And so can I just say for the very first step here for us in beginning to experience God's plan for our life, here's step number one. Sometimes I must admit I can't so that God can say, I can. You know, God doesn't ask us to do things by our own strength. 
We feel that way sometimes, if we're honest. We, we feel like if we're incapable of doing something, it's because we weren't something enough. We weren't influential enough. We weren't strong enough. We didn't have whatever it is. But sometimes stepping into the plan that God has for your life means first and foremost admitting, God, the only way this is going to happen is if you do it through me because I can't do it on my own. That's an awesome first step for us. And I just want to encourage you that if you're in a place in your life where you feel like, what can one person do? How can I do anything, God? What difference can I make in this little world? What difference can I do anywhere? You know, it's about accepting the fact that God through you can do more than you can with yourself. I love it. I heard it put this way, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But, you know, people ask questions uh, within Christianity. You know, do you need the Holy Spirit to be saved? You know, they'll ask that question. You ever hear that question asked before? I love the response. I need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart. Like, it, this is not just about being saved. I mean, no joke, Walmart's rough, okay? But being in the plan that God has for your life and allowing God to work in and through you is a big part of just saying, God, I can't, but I also know that you can. And so God gets a hold of Gideon. He makes him to realize this. Gideon, you know, he, he does something we probably shouldn't do, but he puts God to a test to make him prove that he's calling him. And God's like, okay, Gideon, I'll prove it to you. Yes, it's you. I'm, this is you. I have the plan for you, Gideon. Finally, he realizes this. And as the mighty hero and the man of God that he is, his next move, he slinks in the middle of the night and chops down the altars of Baal and the Asherah poles. Mighty man, Right? But the next morning, the people of the city wake up and they're like, listen, Gideon, we caught you on camera. We saw you. You were in the town square. There's no denying it was you. There's facial recognition. It was you, man. Like, we know it was you. And so they go and do the very, you know, we're, we're talking man here, right? What do they do? They go tell his daddy. Here's what we're going to read here in, in verses 30 to 32. They go to his dad. His, his dad's name is Joash. And they say, bring out your son. The men of the town demanded of Joash, he must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jeroboam, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down the altars. So here we go. Mighty man of God who God's calling. He's finally been convinced. Okay, I believe it. God has a plan for my life. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. He sneaks in the middle of the night and tears down the altars. He's like, this is what God is upset about. I'm going to fix it, but while nobody's watching because I don't want anybody to see me. Anybody ever been there? I don't want anybody to know it was me. I'll, I'll do the nice deed, I'll help that person out, I'll go, but I just don't want anybody, I'll leave a track in the bathroom, and that's how people will find out about Jesus. That does not work. So he does that, and then they go for his dad, and his dad says this, he goes, listen, if God, or if Baal is a God, let him contend for his own sake. And what happens in that moment, we just read it a second ago, is that they change his name, and they stop calling him Gideon, and they start calling him Baal will contend with you. They basically, in their own thinking, they put a curse on him. In their culture, in their idea of who Gideon was, they said, your identity has completely been shifted. You are no longer who you were. You have become something completely different, and what happens to you is on you. Here's the next part of us being able to experience God's plan for our lives. We have to accept 
that God's plan for you is going to change your identity. You know, there's a part of us that wants to hold on. Here's the thing. God's plan is so awesome, right? How many of you agree that God's plan is really awesome? Here's the cost of it, though, that really bugs us. It costs me my plan. It costs me my plan. And, and, you know, we only know in and of ourselves in that transaction what we're giving up. We really don't know yet what God is offering. Right? And so that's where it becomes a matter of faith because it's like, well, God, I had my plan. This is what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. I had an identity as who I am and, and what I'm becoming and how the world around me knows me or my family or my neighbors. And God, I really don't want to put that identity in jeopardy. But God says, no, this is the plan that I have for your life. And if you want to live with purpose and be filled with the hope of Jesus and become the conduit of the hope of Jesus, then you're going to have to let me change your identity a little bit. You might be labeled a couple different things. Christian. You might be labeled a hater. You might be labeled all kinds. Listen, Christianity isn't the most popular thing in the world right now in our culture. And as you live for Jesus, as you choose that in and of yourself, sometimes you're just going to have to accept this is going to change my identity. But here's the, the harder part for us is when it gets down to the, like the nitty gritty of our, our interpersonal relationships. You got a neighbor, and you're and you you know you're neighborly, right? You, you you help each other out. Hey, can I borrow your rake? Sure. Can I borrow your I don't know car? Um, I don't know if you borrow your neighbor's car. I, I don't know. I mean, it depends on their car. I I don't know. But here's the thing: you've got this kind of a relationship with them, but then you know something in you are like, you know, we gotta invite them to church sometime. But oh, I don't want to make it weird, like. Like, what if I invite them to church and they don't want to come to church? And then after that, I'll be like, weird. And I'll, I'll be like the, the super Christian who wants to borrow your rake now. I just won't be me anymore. I'll be the weirdo Christian person. Oh, that's a little uncomfortable. I don't, I just, I, you know what? Let's not invite them because I don't want to make that relationship weird. And so it stops right there. Why? Because we refuse to accept that following Jesus is going to change our identity. And if we would have accepted that, we would realize that stepping into the role that God has for you is probably going to open more doors than you realize. But instead, we're, we're caught up. We're like, oh, that person might yell at me or that person might not be friends with me anymore or, or that coworker might no longer talk to me or they'll say mean things about me or, or any number of things that we play out in our minds. I don't know why we have this scenario that if we go up to tell somebody about Jesus, they're going to say, I hate you and slap you in the face and walk away. I've told a lot of people about Jesus in my life. Can I tell you, I've never had someone tell me they hate me or slap me or walk away. But this is what we think is going to happen. Church, I would encourage you, for the sake of stepping into and experiencing the plan that God has for your life, accept the fact that the plan that God has for you is going to give you a new identity. It's going to change you. People aren't going to see you the same anymore. And that's okay, because it's part of God's plan. Gideon goes from there... And God says, Gideon, I want you to go and raise up an army. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to go in and we're going to defeat the Midianites, those people who've been oppressing you. We're going to take care of them. So Gideon goes and he tells everybody, and an army of 32,000 people show up. Hot dog. That's a good day, isn't it? Here's the thing. God looks at Gideon's army and he goes to Gideon and he says, Gideon, we got a problem. You got too many people. And he's like, uh, can you have too many people, Lord? Like, that's, I think it's okay. It's not a bad problem. But God says, no, 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 no. You got to hear me out. Here's the problem. If you take 32,000 people 
and you go defeat the Midianites, at the end of the battle, you're going to go back to your camp and you're going to sing and dance and celebrate your victory. And this victory isn't going to be yours, Gideon. It's mine. And I want to show you that it's my victory. So here's what I want you to do, Gideon. Why don't you go and just ask the people who are there, if anybody's scared, do they want to go home? I mean, that's reasonable, right? We're about to go to war. 10,000 people. He just lost a third of his army. It's cut down to 22,000. Surely Gideon's like, okay, that that was a sacrifice, God, but I'm going to trust you. It's going to be okay. God comes back again. Gideon, here's the thing. It's too many. It's too many. Here's what I want you to do. Go down to the river and get a drink. So everybody who gets down on their hands and knees and drinks out of the water from their mouth and the people who cup it into their hands, I want you to divide them. He goes, okay. So there were 300 warriors who cupped it with their hand and God says, that's your army. Like, let's picture this for a second. God says, I'm sending you to defeat the Midianites, to this, this enemy that's coming against my people. And you're going to do it with 300 people. Even though 32,000 showed up, you're going to do it with 300. And Gideon has to accept this. But here, here's the awesome part. Don't you know that God knows us? Like he knows our frailties. He knows what's, what, the things that hold us back. So here's what he says to Gideon in Judges 7 verses 9 through 11. He says, get up and go down to the Midianite camp for I have given you victory over them. Like, okay, God said we're going to have victory. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to the, what the Midianites are saying and you will be greatly encouraged. I, can I tell you when I, I was reading this this week in preparation, I just loved this picture because I, I don't know about you, but sometimes my image of God is like when he's saying you should do this, it's just like with little care or concern about how I feel about it, Right? Like, God, this is a hard thing you're asking me. But here's this picture of God just so compassionately speaking to Gideon. He says, Gideon, I realize that asking you to go into battle against an entire nation with only 300 people, that's a lot. But, but you know what? If you're afraid, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. Why don't you go down and sneak into the camp and just listen to what the people are saying down there? And so Gideon does that. He goes down to the camp and he's listening. One guy's having a weird dream where he says a loaf of bread rolled down a hill and wiped out a tent. I think he had too much pizza, but apparently there is an interpretation. His friend answers, verses 14 to 15, he says his companion answered, your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. And when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. It just totally changed his mind. He's like, wow, maybe God really does have a plan. Maybe God really is going to do something amazing. Maybe just, maybe I can begin to believe. And it says they bowed down and just worshiped God. Not in awe of himself. Because here's the thing. When we do things on our own, sometimes we sit back and we just applaud ourselves or wish our arm was slightly longer so we could give ourselves a pat on the back. But God says, let me show you something that is so amazing that the only person who could receive glory from it is me. And here's, here's what I really wanted, this, this final step here for us as we begin to step into experiencing God's plan is to seek God for the courage that only he can give. Listen, God's not asking you to do whatever he's gonna call you to do on your own. He's so much kinder than that. 
He says, I have a plan for you, but I'm not going to forsake you in the process. In fact, we read about this, and in a few moments, we're going we're to take communion together. But there's this picture of Jesus with his disciples, and he's gathered with them, and they're, they're kind of worried about like what's going to happen. And, and, and we already know that Jesus is under attack, and he tells them, I have to leave. And they're like, Jesus, no, 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 why, why would you have to leave? And he says, no, it, it's better for you if I leave, because when I leave, then the helper, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he will help you and guide you in all the things that you need to do. And so they're like, okay, we want that helper. We want to receive help from God. And, and just long story short, you can read, you know, your whole Bible would tell you this, but they go and they change the world. Average everyday people, like we talked about last week, these were kids who were learning to be fishermen in family trades. And God gets a hold of their lives and says, if you would believe in the plan that I have for you, I would transform you and change the world through you. And they go in obedience and do what no one else could have done. Can I encourage you, if you feel like in your life you're in a place where stepping into a decision to do what God has called you to do is gonna be terrifying, welcome to the club. 100%, can I testify this morning? Following Jesus and the plan that he has for your life is terrifying. Let me testify to another part of it. It's completely worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And God doesn't ask us to do it on our own. He says, I'll be with you. I'll guide you. And if you're in the place where maybe you're beginning to feel this inclination towards what God wants you to do, and you're like, I want to experience that. I really do, but I have this fear. God is not just back there going, well, if you're afraid, then forget it. I'm done with you. I, I just can't use fearful people. That's not the picture that we see here given to Gideon. He says, oh, son, if you're afraid, daughter, if you're afraid, I understand. Let me prove to you that you can trust me. Let me prove to you that you can trust me. Let me give you my Holy Spirit that will guide you, guide you and give you comfort, give you peace, help you to realize that you are made for more. Listen, we talked about this last week and this is the reality. We are stuck in a rut of just surviving life. And that's not God's plan for us. God's plan was not for you to just barely make it to the end of this week, to the end of this year, to the end of your career, to the end of your life. God's plan for you is bigger than that. But it takes incredible faith to step into that through first and foremost saying, God, I can't, but I believe that you can't. By accepting that stepping into God's plan for my life is going to change my identity. And lastly, by understanding that even when I feel weak, when I feel like I can't do it, I can seek God and he'll give me the courage to step into that plan. We, we talked about it a couple weeks ago in our, in our Dangerous Prayers series. When they, the church gathered together and they said, God, make us bold for you. Make us bold for you. Make us on fire for you. Make us to be different for you. This is what God has called us to. And listen, church, I want to encourage you, if you're in that place of just beginning to, to consider what it looks like to experience living for God in every part of your life, and you're afraid, present that to God and say, God, would you just show me how good you are? Would you reveal your peace to me? Would you reveal your comfort to me? Would you show me the way to go? Church, there's a lot at stake, and this is really the part of it that, that we've been trying to emphasize again and again. God did not call us to simply survive and really the tactic that keeps us 
first and foremost from fulfilling God's purpose for our lives is busyness. We're so busy. We have so many demands, so many things on our lives that are demanding our time and attention that we just can't even fathom sometimes the idea of stepping back to say, what if God wanted to do something different? What if God was calling me into a different vocation? What if God was calling me into ministry? What if God was calling me to be a missionary? What if God just wanted to use me to reach my next door neighbor? What if God wanted to reach me to use a couple of teenagers in the youth group? What if God wanted to use my life to affect kids and life kids? What if he wanted to help me and use me in the nursery just to rock a baby and pray over them? Maybe he wants to use me to do an outreach or to go into... I don't know what God's plan is for you, but I know it's never going to happen for as long as we stay so busy and so distracted that the only thing we've got time for is surviving. Church, God didn't call you to survive. He didn't die on the cross so that you could just barely make it and survive. He saw your life and he said, I have a plan for you, a plan to prosper you, to give you hope and peace. And it might be terrifying to take that step some days, but I want to promise you this. On the other side of it, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. I love the statement, if it's not good, then he's not done. If it's not good, then God's not done. And sometimes you just got to hold on to that. But I want to invite you in a moment to just come and receive the elements as we are going to take communion together. But just in the similar setting in which Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said, listen, I'm changing everything about you through a new covenant. I want us, as we partake together this morning, to be partakers of that covenant as well and say, God, there was a moment where Jesus was gathered with his disciples and he gives them this bread and this cup and he tells them, I'm, I'm imparting a new covenant to you. Your lives are going to be changed. They're going to be different. You're not going to be who you were anymore. You're going to leave and become who I've called you and created you to be. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, and he, he talks about this, and he says, I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. And we read that, and we think it's just this moment of doing communion together. He says, no, what I received from the Lord was the covenant. What I'm passing on to you is the covenant. That the blood of Jesus and the body, the broken body of Jesus changed my life. And I'm passing it on to you because the broken body and the blood of Jesus will change your life. And then he says that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, that he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Church, it wasn't bread It wasn't a cup of grape juice or wine that was passed on. It was the covenant in which he said you were dead in your transgressions. You were a people of sin who had no hope. 
You were a people who were far from God. But this covenant of grace has been extended to you to transform you, to change you, to remake you so that you can live according to the purpose that God has for you. Church, that's what we celebrate when we take communion together. So Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. We thank you that you willingly laid down your life because it was the cost, the price that must be paid so that we could be transformed and renewed and have relationship with you. God, we thank you that you were willing to go to the cross. And God, we are partakers of that covenant and I pray that we would realize that in this moment. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. God, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. It changed us. It opened the doorway to relationship with you that was not available to us before. It paid the price for us to have the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, making us different, taking us who often feel so insignificant and weak and being filled with the strength that only you can give through a strength that is perfected in our weakness. And God, we say thank you for the blood that changed our lives and that took us off of the course of brokenness that we were on and set us on a course for purpose and hope. And God, as we partake this morning, we want to experience that, to begin to step into that new identity, the plan that you have for us, being filled with the courage that only you can give. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup together. Father, we receive this covenant from you. Not just bread and juice, but we receive the covenant that is given through the blood of your son, Jesus. The covenant of grace and mercy and forgiveness, of life transformation that has set us apart and made us different that has given hope for every life. And God, I pray that you will transform us daily in that process, in Jesus' name, amen.